good afternoon. It is still afternoon. You couldn't tell that from how dark it's gone in here all of a sudden, but it is still afternoon. So good afternoon. My name is Damanola, as has been said, and I have the privilege of preaching today, and it's good to have you in the house. I know Rebecca has just prayed for me, um, but we're greedy for prayer in this place. So we're going to pray once more as we come to open God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the prayer that's been prayed over me. Um, But yes, Lord, in this moment, we join together to pray as family for each other. Lord, I thank you that every single person that's in this sanctuary, every single person that is watching online is known by you. And Lord, I ask that in this time as we meet, that we would meet with you, that you would speak to us right to the core of who we are through your word. Thank you for your spirit's presence with us. We long to see everything that he desires unleashed in this place. So we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Now we are starting a sermon series today, um, and the overall theme of this sermon series is God with us. We're looking at what it is for God to be with us. And as we look at this in each week, we're going to be looking at Jesus with a different group, Jesus with a different subset of humanity, working out what it is for God to be with us in the midst of Jesus's interactions with these people. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we dive into that, has anyone here heard of the five love languages? Anyone heard of the five love languages? I'm going to try and rattle them off in alphabetical order, so pray for me. So we've got acts of service, we've got gifts, we've got touch, got quality time and words of affirmation. Acts of service, gifts, touch, quality time, words of affirmation. Now, the big idea behind the five love languages, if you're not familiar with them, is that in a relationship, it takes a bit of stuff to make it work. It takes a little something to make it work. And in this idea, we have it that there are different ways that some people give love and different ways that other people best receive love. And we are at relationship jackpot when those two things match up. So when you're in a relationship, be it husband or wife, parent or child, friend to friend, when the way that you give love matches the way that the person that you are loving best receives love, you are in a good spot. Things get a bit dicey when those two things are chalk and cheese. So you give love in a certain way and the person you're seeking to love receives it in a totally, totally different way. So what we have with this um, framework of the five love languages is trying to better understand each other and see how we can love each other well, right? Now, as I said, those you probably were placing yourself across the five, all of them are in play for each of us, um, but different ones of them stick out for us more prominently. And as I go through the five for myself, I mean, yeah, I do think about where I sit on the spectrum of each of them, but what I really think is, why is food not on this list? Like, how are we... How are we going to have a way of communicating and receiving love and not have food on the list? Now, for those of you who are nutritionally minded in this place, you might not agree with what I'm about to say, but hands up if squashies are part of how you receive love in this world. Shout out, shout out to you. Let me see if I've, if I can, um, if I can help you. I see. 
That was for Lois Takiobli. I know it landed in the middle of nothingness, but it was, it was making its way towards Lois. Is there anyone here who receives love through Kinder Bueno? Any Bueno, bueno people in the Bueno People house? I'm going to be less ambitious and just go straight to the front row. Now, moving, moving on from chocolate, anyone here receive love through a Birkin bag? Oh, I mean... Know for sure that it's not about to happen. Now, for some people here wondering, what, what's a Birkin bag? Birkin bag is not this bag, you'd be glad to know. A Birkin bag is a very bougie, very expensive form of bag that retails for 40000 to $500,000 and can be resold for up to $2 million. So you can see how it was very, very easy for me to offer love through squashies and how it totally wasn't going to happen for me to offer love through a Birkin bag. What's my point? If you have more expensive tastes, it's going to be more difficult for your friends to satisfy that. So just as a heads up, if you're in my life, the way you receive love is a Birkin bag. I am so sorry. I'm going to disappoint you again and again and again and again. If you've got more chill taste, then your needs can be satisfied again and again and again. So Amy, I can get you another Kinder Bueno for next week. We can organize that. That's easily done. More expensive tastes, on the whole, are harder to satisfy. More relaxed ones are easier to satisfy. Now, what does the scripture, what does the Bible speak into this mix? And um, The Bible is not going to offer squashies for all. I'm sure you um, can already think through that yourself. Um, when it comes to what we most need to be fully alive, what we most need to receive love, what does the Bible speak into that? And what the Bible says is that for every single person, whether they are a Christian or not, the thing that they most need to know they are loved is God's own self. That is what you most need. Blaise Pascal, the French theologian, mathematician, philosopher, puts it like this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every man. And he's writing at a time in history where that word would have encompassed all of humanity. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every man. It cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator himself made known through Jesus Christ. Now, on a scale of zero to very, very, very expensive, you would think that the very being of God is right up there with very, very expensive. In fact, God's own person, God's being, would break any human scale of measurement and meaning because he's outside of that. So how does this work? How does it work that the thing that we most need is that which is most expensive, most valuable? What does God God say to that. Well, over the course of the Bible's story, we see God promise again and again and again and again to his people. He makes a promise to be with them. And that is God recognizing that the deepest need, the deepest longing of the human heart is God's entire being. And God says, I will give myself to you. I will be with you. 
Now, when God does that, is he just indulging humanity? We've said about what it is to receive love. So for us, it's to receive the entirety of his being. That's what the Bible says. For him, he does meet us there. He gives himself to us. But does he do that out of obligation? Does he do it out of pity? Why does he do it? Well, hear these words from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 4 and just take in what God's disposition is towards you and I as he offers himself to us. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ Jesus to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we arrive at the sweet spot of existence, our biggest need, our deepest longing, that which most communicates to us that we are loved, cannot be fobbed away by chocolate. It cannot be fobbed away by expensive trinkets. There is inside of us a gaping longing for the entirety of God's being. And in the biblical story that we see that God no long, not just gives himself, he delights in giving himself. It, he, it is his joy to pour himself himself out and to give himself for people. Now, how do we see this play out across the biblical story? What does it look like for God to be with? Now, a key idea here is the idea of accommodation. Say that word with me, accommodation. Let's try that again, accommodation. Now, when I say accommodation, I don't mean where you put your head down to sleep each night. Um, I mean more what happens with me. I, I would say I'm an average-sized woman, but what happens with me when a particularly tall friend is speaking to me and they crane their head downwards or they shuffle towards me so that they can bridge the gap a bit between my short self and their taller self. Or more familiarly, we see accommodation, an example of accommodation when a young child runs towards an adult either with a massive story to tell them or a gaping wound on their arm and we see the adult drop down to engage with the child on their own terms. We see the adult bridge the gap between themselves and the little one in order to enable deeper connection between them in a moment. So sometimes accommodation looks like dropping down. Other times this accommodation looks like scooping up, sweeping the child into your arms. If you're an auntie or an uncle, a parent or a carer, a nanny, sweeping the child into your arms and engaging with them again on a face-to-face -face level. So the postures look different, but the idea is the same, that there is an adjustment that is made to reconcile the difference. And what does this look like with God as he loves us, as he comes to be with his people? Well, over the course of the biblical story, we see God again and again and again zoom in to the particular circumstances of a particular person's life with intimate involvement. And in the midst of doing this, God is showcasing to them what it is for him to be with them, but also what his purposes are for the entire world. So an example is 
Abraham. God calls Abraham away from his family, away from all that he has known. God meets with him in the midst of he and his wife's fertility struggle. And in the midst of that, God showcases that he has deep affection for Abraham. He will be with Abraham, but also that through Abraham, he wants to establish his purposes in the world. And there are a few things that come to mind again and again as we see God showing what it is for him to be with, what it means for God's presence to follow a people. And we start off in the Garden of Eden and we see God's presence as God's company, the simple fact of him delighting in people and them getting to delight in him. And we have this in Genesis chapter 3. Now Genesis chapter 3 is known as a chapter in the Bible where it all goes wrong. And that most certainly is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. But before Pooh hits the fan, we have the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day with the man and the woman longing not to give them an instruction not to give them a list of do's and don'ts but simply to be with them he simply comes in order to spend time with them other times we see God's presence as his protection and his direction. So in Exodus chapter 3, we see God having an exchange with a man called Moses through a burning bush. And the point of that is that God is telling him, God is leading him to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt to a promised land that God is sending them into. Now this has a bit of history for Moses because he, this is going to involve a confrontation with the powers of Egypt. Moses was raised within the royal household of Egypt. Things went a bit wrong. You can read about yourself. And he's been on the run from this family. And God is sending him right into that center, that land of his pain and his sorrow. And God is saying, I'm going to redeem that story. I'm going to do something with that that confounds your worst case prediction of what this was going to be like. I'm going to use you to bring transformation to my people. So God instructs Moses. Now Moses very much does not want to do this, but God keeps at it with him. And so as the story continues, we see Moses and the people of God in the wilderness on their way to the land of the promise. And God's presence with them is manifested as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And in this, God is directing the people. He is telling them what way to go, where is best to camp, what routes to avoid. But he is also protecting them through the pillar of fire by night. The presence of God is keeping them from the harshness of the cold in the depths of the night. And through the cloud by day, the Lord God is keeping them from the harshness of the sun. On all bases, God has his people covered. If you're here today, if you're watching online, you need to know in the depths of your soul that on all bases, God has you covered. We also see the presence of God manifest as God's comfort and God's healing. So we come to the book of First Samuel in the Bible and we meet a woman called Hannah. Shout out for women in the Old Testament. Now, Hannah is one of two wives. And again, there is a fertility struggle here. And she is crying out to God in anguish. 
at what it is to have this longing, to have this desire, and for it to not be fulfilled, and for her to be taunted in the midst of this. And what does God do? God sends a message of comfort to her through his priest, Eli. God also brings healing to her. God turns the story around. This is what it is like for God to be with his people. And yet the story continues. And in the testimony of the people of Israel, we don't just have rosy moments where the presence of God means that everything is going well. See, the people of God turn away from God and as such calamity befalls them and things go wildly wrong. And yet, even as God is punishing his people, even as he is instructing them and telling them that they have gone the wrong way, God is making provision for them to be restored to him. Now, what is God's recovery plan? We've heard a lot about recovery plans in the past 18 months. What is God's recovery plan for a world gone wrong? We see it in the promise of the birth of a child. And the name of this child is prophesied to be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God is going to make good on the promise, the consistent promise throughout the Hebrew scriptures on his promise to be with. And he's going to do it through a child. And so we come to today's particular topic. Don't worry, that was the warm-up, but we're going to move swiftly from this point onwards. Um, we have seen within the general picture of the Bible story, at least in the Old Testament, that God's heart is to be with, and that the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition is that more than we want anything else, more than we're craving anything else, that that which will give us the most satisfaction is God's own self. So how does this continue with the coming of Jesus. I'm going to read a passage from Luke chapter 7. I'd invite you to follow along if you can, but if you don't have a Bible with you either physically or on your phone, then you can listen as I read. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 across verses 36 to 50. And I read... One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Imagine that. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. 
Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, before we zoom into this story, there's a bit of history that you need to know to get it right. And I am here to give you that piece of history. So just know we have three main characters in this story. There are other people around, but there are three main characters. Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, who is hosting Jesus in his home for a meal. And this unnamed woman who is identified only as a sinful woman. Um, And the consensus here is that this woman is a prostitute. So as far as sins go, we can say it's pretty, pretty sinful. Jesus, Simon, and the prostitute. Now the backstory, what frames this moment is that in the Old Testament, there is a system of the law. And we have in the law a set of rules, parameters for living that are given from God to the people. Now Simon is an expert in these laws. And part of him having Jesus over is to test him to see what he's like on the law. And the understanding that is operative is that a holy God must be apart from a sinful people. Now we need to consider what that looks like, what it looks like for what we've said of God to be true and for this to be the operative understanding. Now when Simon is thinking this, he's not totally off. The Bible does speak to the problem of human sin and its incompatibility with the holiness of God. So we have God and we have sinful people and the marriage of these two things is actually quite difficult cult to exist. Now, why is this? The concept of holiness in the Hebrew scriptures, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project has a really helpful analogy for communicating what the holiness of God is like, because this is really, really, really foreign to our modern ears. So we need to step into the understanding that was operative at this time in history to understand the heart of what is happening in this passage. Now, when we think of the word holiness, we tend to think of it as moral purity, And it is indeed that. But within the Hebrew scriptures, the idea is broader and deeper than that. So when it says that God is holy, it does say that he is morally spotless. But it also describes God's uniqueness in being the sustainer and the giver of life. That he is completely set apart in how he holds the world and sustains life. And the analogy that is made is that with the sun. 
that the sun is unique in our solar system and how it sustains and gives life to the point that you could say the sun is holy. And yet getting too close to the sun consumes that which comes into its orbit, not because the sun is bad, but because the very thing that makes the sun so good and able to sustain life also makes it quite dangerous. And so we see the drama, the problem of a holy God being with a sinful people. And part of how God responds to that, part of his recovery plan, as I said earlier, is to give the law. And the law is given so that God's desire and that people's deepest need can know union. The law is given so that a holy God can be in close proximity to a sinful people. Because God's heart is to be with us. And yet by the time we get to this story, by the time we get to Simon and Jesus in his home, there has been a subset of Jews who see the law not as a tool of getting sinful people into the presence of God, but of keeping sinful people out of the presence of God. And key to this idea and key to the law is that sin is contagious, that it contaminates and you know what? That's not just an idea. We can see that play out in our world. Human rebellion against God contaminates, destroys, defects things. And yet the solution that the Pharisees give is total separation. Let's keep sin away from God. And that is why Simon sees this woman come to Jesus and is outraged because he says, surely any good Jew would know that a sinful woman of this type will contaminate him. And yet, let's see Jesus' response. You see, Simon has the situation set up such that there is one sinner in this encounter. And yet, we see Jesus tell a story across verses 41 and 42. And in this story, he speaks of two debtors, not one. And they do have different debts, but they are both in debt towards this generous man. And the man in the story is meant to be God, and the debtors are both Simon and this woman. And we can widen the category. The debtors are not just Simon and this woman. All of humanity owes a debt to God. What does God do with that? Well, in the story, Jesus says, the God forgives this sin. God, God forgives this debt. God cancels the debt. And yet, what do we see? And we see how people respond to the cancellation of the debt. And one of them is this woman. And it's clear that before she comes into this encounter with Jesus, she's heard of him already. This isn't her first time coming to grips with who Jesus is. Somehow she's heard the message that he proclaims that through him there is forgiveness with God, that God is reconciling sinners to himself. And she hears this news and it changes everything for her. See, she's lived life on the assumption that because of the way her life has gone, because of the decisions that she's made, it is done between her and God. And yet Jesus says, no, God's desire, God's love, what pleases God's heart is to be with, and God is making it possible for you to be with him. And she comes to Jesus and she pours out an offering of love 
at his feet because she is so thankful for what he has done. And rather than turn her away in order that her sin doesn't contaminate him, Jesus welcomes the embrace of this woman. He affirms her because what is contagious now is not sin from us to God, but actually God's holiness from him to us. That in this moment of embrace, in this moment of intimacy, what is happening is that her sin is being exchanged for God's own holiness through Jesus. And she can know union with God. That which her heart most needs, most longs for, can be realized in the presence of God. And as she responds to this, she adopts a posture that is deeply costly to her. See, the Pharisees have gathered Jesus to put him on trial, and yet her display of love to him puts the heat, puts the spotlight on her. And yet what does Jesus do in response to this? Jesus doesn't castigate her. Jesus doesn't send her away. Jesus goes into that place of reputational suicide, of being cast aside, and he embraces her. And he takes the heat onto himself so that she can enjoy a moment of intimacy with himself. Jesus tells her that her sins are forgiven, but not only that her sins are forgiven, that her faith has saved her, that her expression, her realization of what God is doing in Jesus is making her whole. And yet there isn't just one sinner, as I've said, there are two sinners. And we see in Jesus's demonstrating the lavish grace of God, that it's not just that Jesus is a prophet who has a different understanding of God. That's what Simon thinks. And Simon thinks Jesus' understanding of God is faulty. The true plot twist here is not just that Jesus has a certain understanding of God, but that Jesus himself is God. So if you want to look to see what God is like with sinners, look at Jesus in this story. And yet there are two sides to this. There is the woman and there is also Simon. And the text seems to accept that Simon hasn't gone as wrong. He hasn't done as much that is bad as this woman. And yet in both of their different postures, they both are estranged from God. She, because of the decisions that she's made and the life that she is leading, him because he is seeking to have it all together and to live a life that pleases God or at least pleases himself without being with God. And Jesus says, neither of those ways will cut it. In order for you to know the thing that most gives you satisfaction and most makes you come alive, it's not about your performance, it's not about a tick box exercise, it's about you coming to be with me. And so we have the option to respond to Jesus. The same offer is extended to you and I as it was extended back then. And if you followed what I've been saying with the love languages, you'll see that we still have a category that's missing. Because we've looked at what we, how we most need to receive love. 
we've looked at how God gives us love and how he enjoys giving love, what is native to him. What we've not looked at is what God desires from us in response. What is it that God wants from us? What is God's own language from us to him? And this woman shows it to us. The thing that God most wants from you and I as we give, as he gives himself to us in order to satisfy that most deep of longings within us is the entirety of who we are. That is what God is most after. So if you're in this place and you have felt estranged from God, you have felt far from him, Know that he is with you. That's his heart. That's his nature. And yet, it's not a one-way thing. It's a two-way thing. We see the disposition of God towards us, but also we have a free response to make to him. So the question is, what is your response going to the be, to be? to this God who gives himself for you in the person of Jesus, who takes the heat, who takes the hit for your sin, for my sin onto himself so that his heart's desire and our deepest desire can know union and that we can be together. What is our response going to be? We see how this woman responds in embracing this love. We see how Simon responds in rejecting this love. How will we respond today?